Hi, welcome to the Tech Book Club. My name is Vibov, and today I am joined by my good friend Emmett. Emmett, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're recording this in Santa Monica on a Sunday, and Emmett, we've been friends since first year of UChicago. We were both in Kenwood House. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you were an economics major yep. at the University of Chicago. You're the biggest baseball fan I know. <laughs> and after you Chicago, you worked for the Washington Nationals. Yeah, yeah. I spent I spent 2018 working in the Washington Nationals baseball operations department. How how was that? It was great. It was a great experience. Um, I got to I got to learn a lot. I got to work with baseball every day. I got to call Nationals Park my office. It, it, it was a great experience. Yeah. The book we're talking about today is about player development in baseball. And when I came across this book, obviously you were the first person I thought about. And we had dinner a couple of weeks ago and I kept going back and forth whether I wanted to do this book for the Tech Book Club, but I think you convinced me to do it um, over dinner. Why do you think this book is a great book for this podcast specifically for people interested in tech and maybe not too interested in baseball. Absolutely. Um, I, I think tech can sometimes be a bit of an insular community. You know, with, with Silicon Valley, it, it can kind of be a bit of a bubble and tech is kind of its own world and tech really can sometimes seem to only exist within tech. Yeah. You know, you have tech companies are not, even, even if they're doing food delivery, even if they're doing ride sharing, you know, what have you, if they're in other industries, they're still just tech. Mm-hmm. And those are certainly very important and they do a very good job of growing their businesses and implementing their technology and changing their industries. But as we move forward and as, you know, technology keeps pushing further and further forward, I think that it's going to start pushing its way into other industries and start to be implemented on in the day-to-day for lots of companies that aren't quote-unquote tech companies. I, yeah. I think you're going to start to see it almost everywhere. And as those moves happen, I think it's going to be really important for people who are coming from that tech background but working for these non-technology-oriented companies or industries to be able to integrate the technology into these systems effectively and to find ways to communicate with everyone else about how this technology works, how it's utilized, the most effective way to implement it. And I think those changes are going going to be difficult for a lot of people coming from that tech background who are used to everyone understanding what you're talking about. And I think this book is a really good snapshot of how that transition happened within a specific industry that isn't necessarily a tech industry. Right. It kind of reminds me of my dad's company, actually. His company is a tech company and it works in, he works in the automotive industry, you know, and like the automotive industry is not like ride sharing or food delivery companies and things like that. And it's been around for decades and decades. Companies like my dad's company like sort of pushes the industry forward by introducing technology data, things like that to like not a stagnating industry at all. Like obviously they're still innovating, but like an industry that's been around for a couple of decades. Absolutely. That's like a perfect comparison. So I think before talking about this book, it's important to talk about Moneyball. So Moneyball was 
the famous Michael Lewis book that came out in 2003. And it basically showed like a way to assemble a competitive baseball team using analytics, data, a lot of evidence. Why don't you speak a little bit about like what was the impact of Moneyball in the baseball industry? Going back to the early 1900s, there were statisticians keeping track of batting average, RBIs, home runs. But there wasn't a lot uh, known about how valuable each of the statistics were, at least not quantitatively, not, not with a lot of evidence. People just thought, oh, he has a good batting average. He's a good player. And towards the end of the 20th century, there started to be a statistical movement where, um, really born out of fantasy baseball, actually, uh, surprisingly enough, but you kind of had these very smart people with very quantitative backgrounds digging in deep into baseball statistics and finding that traditional wisdom was not necessarily correct. Uh, batting average is not a good way to evaluate a hitter, it turns out. And so slowly, this knowledge kind of seeped out into select baseball front offices, but it really was not well known. It was really not mainstream. People covering baseball as reporters or people broadcasting the games were not talking about these new statistics or these different statistical ideas. It was still kind of the same batting average and RBIs, etc. And Moneyball was kind of the book that thrust the statistical movement into the mainstream. Um, The Oakland Athletics were and still are a very small budget organization. And they were... (laughs) They were forced, because of their small budget, to try and push and find competitive advantages in other areas of the game. And so they were one of the first teams to really dive in deep on the statistical end and find marketing inefficiencies and capitalize on those. Right. And so Michael Lewis, not- uh, the author of Moneyball, noticed that this team with a payroll of a quarter of the size of the Yankees was uh, putting up just as many wins in 2002. And so he tagged along for the 2003 season right. and kind of wrote a tell-all about exactly how they were doing what they were doing. And uh, the book really just found its audience. And all of a sudden, everyone knew that on-base percentage is a much better way to tell who's a good player. And really, the statistical revolution just kind of snowballed after that. Nowadays, every team is a Moneyball team. Everyone knows all those ideas and is utilizing them. Right. There's actually a great movie with (laughs) Brad Pitt about Moneyball, so everyone should definitely check that out but in Moneyball like the players were viewed as a box of chocolates like they were endlessly varied there were a bunch of different types of chocolates and you were just trying to select the best ones and the way you would select them there was a bunch of different ways you would select and evaluate players you would pick undervalued players in the draft you would trade for undervalued players on other teams and you would sign undervalued players at lower salaries but the focus was trying to find value And you sort of made the assumption that player value was fixed. And there was nothing in Moneyball about the development of players. And that's where this book is very different. Because in this book, like they talk about how in the past, like last decade, really, like people have been using analytics, data and technology, not to select players. I mean, they still use analytics, data and technology to select players, but like Now they're using analytics, data, and technology to develop players and basically use that data to pursue perfection for players. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Maybe a good example is in the draft, whereas in the Moneyball days, you would try and find who is the best player among these draft picks, which which one is performing the best and really has the highest level of true talent. 
in the draft today, teams aren't looking at necessarily who's the best performer among these players. They're looking at which guy can we make the best. Mm. And that's really kind of the shift that's happened in the last 10 years or so. Right. So this is a very long book. Um, (laughs) This actually might be the longest book I read for this podcast so far. And I thought the best way to do this episode would be to first talk about three players, Trevor Bauer, Rich Hill, and Justin Turner, and how they use technology to develop as players, optimize themselves as players, and basically be the best versions of themselves. And then talk about Driveline, which is a cutting-edge baseball development and training company. And then finally talk about a few teams, specifically the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox, who were two teams in the forefront of player development from a team's perspective. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the Dodgers, too, um, (laughs) both of our favorite teams. Um, So let's start off with um, Trevor Bauer. Who was he, and like, why was he one of the main focuses of this book? Sure. So, so Trevor Bauer uh, is a successful major league pitcher. He he's kind of always been good for a long time, uh, which is kind of different from a lot of the other players in the book. He was one of the best pitchers in college at UCLA. Was drafted number three overall, and has been a successful major leaguer for six years now. Um, you know, he's a quality starting pitcher and has performed better than that at times. What makes him such an interesting character in this book and the reason he's such a main focus is he is very open about his use of technology and uh, progressive training methods and how he's using them to get better and he is also often kind of thrown away conventional wisdom and hasn't been afraid to challenge the kind of systemic ideas that infiltrated baseball for so long Mm -hmm. uh, and that were still up when he first became a professional at the start of the 2010s. So one of the main technologies that Bauer and eventually a lot of other pitchers use is the Edgertronic camera. So what is this camera and how did Bauer use it to improve his pitch? Yeah, so Edgertronic camera arguably is the most revolutionary item of technology, specifically within pitching development. Yeah. Um, you know, there are other the other pieces that are very important, but the Edgertronic camera is unique because it ha- it is a high frame rate camera, so it captures... Uh, it's images in extreme slow motion, 5,000 frames per second. Right. And uh, there are other cameras that can do that, but the problem is they use a rolling shutter. Mm-hmm. And so when you have an object like a baseball that's moving so fast when a pitcher is throwing it that uh, there's a massive jump, like even between frames at a slow motion there's kind of a blurring effect. And so you lose the fine detail in most cameras. Right. But the Edgertronic camera doesn't use a rolling shutter. It uses, I think it's called the universal shutter. And so it captures the whole image at once. And so that allows you to actually have a fine level of detail in each image um, as you're watching it. And so when you capture a baseball, uh, a pitcher throwing a baseball on an Edgertronic camera, you can see exactly how their fingers are gripping the ball, exactly how the ball is being released. Mm. These are really minute factors, but they're extremely important for a pitcher trying to figure out how to get their an extra two inches of movement on their slider, for instance. And so Bauer was the first one to kind of use this Edgertronic camera for his own pitching development. He basically would set it up, throw a pitch, watch it instantly, and see exactly what went wrong, what went right. And he would have quantified values of what he was looking for. He's like, I want 
seven inches of horizontal break on my breaking ball. Yeah. And so he's like, well, I had five inches of break on that one, so I clearly need to get more movement. Let me try doing this with my index finger. And then he would throw it, and then he'd look at the fit, and then he'd look at the footage and be like, okay, I got a little bit more because this happened. I, you know, I tucked my thumb, and that allowed the ball to come out a little sooner, and it allowed me to get a little more force with the tips of my fingers. And he would have this instant feedback loop. And so he would throw thousands of pitches in the offseason and just finally craft these pitches until he got them exactly where he wanted. And that is just such a world of difference from the way pitchers developed pitches before, where someone would show them a grip for a changeup, yeah. and they'd throw it, and it worked or it didn't. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it really kind of feels like looking back at the Stone Age now. But that's the way it worked for decades. Right. And Bauer also used the camera to figure out how other pitchers were doing their pitches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he would uh, take the camera around with him during the season, and then when they played against, and when pitchers would pitch against his team that he really wanted to emulate, such as like Marcus Stroman, who had one of the best sliders in baseball, he'd set the camera up behind the home plate and get the footage of Stroman throwing a slider, and then he'd have this high-definition footage and he'd go into the bullpen, and he'd be like, okay, he's... He's doing this with his thumb, and I've never thought about doing that before, and that's maybe the key. And he would do it, and it would, and like he would do that throughout the season to like just keep getting his pitch better and better. Yeah, the amount of detail that like goes with these pitch adjustments, like grip adjustments, like leaving your index finger like a second before you like reach all the way over there, it's like absolutely yeah. insane. It's nuts. It, it it's completely nuts. But when you realize that like these, you know their arms are traveling at 100 miles an hour and you know they're covering you know maybe a foot between like when they're cocked and when they're actually releasing the ball like that's such a small window of time like to make these adjustments like you really have to like have every single part of it choreographed perfectly if you want to be able to execute right do you ever think that this is a little too much information for pitchers at times absolutely trevor bauer is not every pitcher he is not you cannot train every pitcher this way. They are not necessarily going to be able to use all that information. It's a lot of overload. People aren't always as cerebral or always as actively thinking. Some some people are just the pick it up and throw it type. Trevor Bauer is unique in the sense that like he studied engineering in college. He's always been scientifically inclined. He's he's always been pushing to get more information because he's going to use it. But there are a lot of pitchers who having more information is honestly just going to give them more paralysis on what to do or more mixed feedback, and it's going to hinder their development. So it's, it, it's definitely not a cookie-cutter approach. Right. Another key technology that pitchers use is the TrackMan. Do you want to talk a little bit about the TrackMan? I know you have some personal experience with the TrackMan as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so TrackMan is a radar system. Um, it was actually initially developed for golf, but uh, it quickly found other applications in baseball. Mm -hmm. And it kind of looks like a big black square yeah. and you set it up in baseball's case behind home plate and you calibrate it to specifically track the ball and when it does that it tracks every single measurement related to the ball so it will track its release point its velocity its spin rate its spin axis the velocity off the bat like the launch angle off the bat anything related to the ball happening between the pitcher's mound and home plate track man is measuring got it um and and, and i i spent a summer interning for TrackMan in college. Um, you know, I kind of got to firsthand operate the system and it, uh, the amount of information it gives you on every single pitch really is eye opening. Mm. It, it, it has changed the level of baseball analysis, right. um, dramatically. So would it be fair to say that while the electronic camera is basically taking a picture of like a pitcher's release, 
an overall pitch, like TrackMan is basically giving you much more advanced statistics. Yeah, exactly. The TrackMan camera is great for the actual physical development for a pitcher. They get they get to see the feedback of what they need to do with their body. That's the Edutronic, right? Yeah, the Edutronic camera. But but um, but TrackMan is giving you the data. It's giving you the actual measurement. Mm. So you can see, oh, uh, my finger did this. That's how I released it. But TrackMan's going to be like, well, that actually broke two inches more. Right. That's what's telling you. So you kind of need to use them um, together. Like, that's what Trevor Bauer would do. I think he actually used a Rapsodo unit, which um, is kind of a little more portable and a little less accurate um, and doesn't give you quite as much data, but it's effectively the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. They're giving you kind of the same data points. So how do pitchers use this data, like release points, velocity, spin rates, to improve as pitchers? It depends on the pitcher, but almost every data point can be used. And it'll, it, a lot of times it's teams that are finding the data and coming to pitchers and trying to inform them of what they need to do differently. Because mm-hmm. most pitchers are not looking at their TrackMan readouts after every game. Yeah. Um, and co- athletes are incredible people, but they're not the most data-oriented for the right. most part. With a TrackMan unit, one of the big things is spin access and spin rate. Mm-hmm. So how many revolutions per minute is the ball going is, is kind of new data that came out of TrackMan when it was first implemented. And so teams realized that generally having a really high spin rate on a breaking ball is going to correlate to more movement and more success. However, they also found that you can have a really high spin rate but not have a lot of movement if your spin axis is wrong because you end up having a lot of gyro spin, which is just spin that doesn't move the ball at all. Mm. And so they would come to pitchers and be like, hey, we want to try and fix your spin axis because you have a really high innate spin rate. And that was a way a lot of teams would kind of find new market inefficiencies. They would target guys who had really high spin rates but really low spin efficiency, which mm. is spin rate and movement, like kind of the ratio of spin rate and movement. Yeah. And and they would acquire them via trade or via signing and then be like, hey, you try throwing your curveball this way. Right. And all of a sudden you get like a column Q or something who mm. turns out to be like a very good major league pitcher that the Astros picked up for nothing. A little off topic, but like, do you have any idea of like how other team other sports like basketball and football are doing when it comes to advanced analytics like relative to baseball yeah so so baseball is just kind of the easiest sport or one of the easiest sports to measure just because everything is so uh individualized it's so quantifiable and each individual event is like measured uh, and tracked so there are some uncertainties but like you there's no one else contributing to a player's offensive production besides the hitter like there's, you know, there's some luck, but it's all derived from their production. And for the most part, the same is true with the pitcher. Defense gets a little bit more complicated, but that's also the least important of those three elements. Right. So baseball's just, like, baseball's certainly was the most advanced for a very long time, and it might still be, but it's just the easiest. Right. Basketball has certainly caught up a lot of the way in terms of its technological advancements and kind of the statistical analysis being provided. Uh, and certainly with, you know... <laughs> You know, efficiency being kind of the new currency of the NBA, um, you've seen the game change a lot based off those revelations. Um, but defense is a massive part of current statistical analysis in basketball, and that's a lot harder to quantify because you can't break down the individual components as easily. Right. And then getting into possession sports like hockey or soccer or football, there's just so many variables as to who's contributing what and like <laughs> finding finding out like what each player's individual contribution is that it's they're they're getting better for sure but it's really hard and so you 
the statistical tools being applied in each sport are probably equally sufficiently advanced at this point. Everyone's kind of caught on to the statistical revolution. It's just the amount of knowledge on each sport is kind of varied. Right. You know, baseball might be like the most known sport, whereas soccer might be like the least. Got it. Got it. It's crazy how like both of the Houston teams, the Rockets and yeah. the Astros, <laughs> are sort of at the forefront. But um, let's let's move on. The next question I have is like about Rich Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, Rich Hill, he's a Dodgers pitcher. How did he use data and technology to reshape his career? Like at one point, he was almost a washed out player, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Rich Hill was an unsuccessful major league pitcher. He he was kind of a fringe guy, last last guy on the roster. Really had not found success as a major leaguer to the point where he had been. He was a free agent and couldn't find a job, and he actually pitched for the Long Island Ducks, an independent league team. Wow. Just to try and get a contract with a affiliated club. You know, he, he'd always... Some of that was injuries. He couldn't stay healthy very much, but but also he wasn't a very effective pitcher. Mm. But when he pitched uh, for the Long Island Ducks, the Red Sox saw his outing, liked it, signed him, and when they got him in their system uh, and started putting him in front of trackman units, they saw that he had elite spin rates like like super elite spin rates his curveball was incredible and his fastball despite being only 90 miles an hour had super high spin efficiency which makes it much harder to hit because basically a really high highly spin efficient fastball is going to drop a lot less than you would expect due to gravity just because the spin is keeping it up and so that's really hard for a hitter to adjust to so the fastball stays up exactly because of the spin rate yeah okay yeah so think of it depending on which way the spin is moving so if you're spin, if you have um, top spin, for instance, the that's a sinker, and it's going to actually drop a lot more than you would expect. But if you have perfect backspin, which is what Rich Hill has, then it's actually going to stay up because the spin is keeping the ball up above, kind of like the natural expected drop. Mm. Um, Rich Hill was with the Red Sox, and the Red Sox saw that he had these great this great spin rate, and so they got one of their staffers to <laughs> that who we'll talk about later to to kind of talk to him and be like, hey. We think you should throw your curveball a lot more mm. because statistical analysis has showed that throwing your best pitch more often is good. Yeah. You know, not the craziest idea in the world, but baseball has these ingrained ideas where you throw your fastball. Your fastball is your go-to. You should throw your fastball 60% of the time. Mm. And, and mm. it's hard to get pitchers who've been taught to throw their fastball their entire life to not throw their fastball, even if their fastball is not very good. Um, and so the Red Sox came to Rachel and were like, hey, throw your curveball a lot more and throw your fastball up. Because if you're throwing your fastball up, it's staying above hitters' bats and it looks like your curveball. Rachel started doing that. He started throwing his curveball 50% of the time and he struck out everybody. Wow. Like, like he just instantly became a really good starting pitcher in the majors. <laughs> like at, from going to an independent league team to pitching for the Red Sox in like two months. So basically like, he had two key changes, right? Like one was to throw the fastball and make sure it stayed up. And the second was just to throw the curveball at a much higher frequency. And uh, maybe the third thing is to focus a little bit on pitch tunneling, which is making sure that like your fastball and curveball sort of look the same when it's first released by the pitcher so that the hitters don't really know the difference until it's a little too late. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, you know, if you if you dive in deep to the process of hitting, there's basically a decision point, because an average fastball takes 0.4 seconds to get down plate, and 
human eye can't register the ball for a hundred of those milliseconds. And then you have to make the decision to swing by 250 milliseconds. Otherwise, like you're just not going to be able to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. You need 150 milliseconds to execute your swing. So you have a 150 millisecond window by which to like make your decision is, am I swinging or am I not? Is this, mm. what pitch is this? Where is it going? Really hard to do. I still don't know how major league hitters do it. <laughs> <laughs> it blows my mind. And what the Red Sox did to Rich Hill sort of reminds me of what the Astros did to basically every pitcher that they signed. <laughs> they, they basically signed a pitcher and would tell them like what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right and basically be like, completely drop the sinker, increase your frequency of your curveball from 20 to 50%, increase the frequency of your slider from 30 to 40%, and just on and on, they would make these changes to every pitcher they signed, basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, um, the Astros, they didn't, they weren't necessarily the first to, like, think of any of these individual ideas. The, in some cases, they were, but what they really did better than anybody was implement it on an organizational level. Mm. They you know, it, not every pitcher that you tell to, like, throw the curveball more, if the curveball's their best pitch, is going to become Rich Hill. Yeah. Like, the curveball might not be good enough. They might not be able to throw enough strikes. There's a lot of reasons why, like, they're unique. They still have to be good baseball players. But if you do it for every single player in your organization, the marginal gains add up really quickly. Right. And you can get a lot of value out of your system that way. And right. the Astros were just really ahead of curve in doing that. Here we might want to talk about the fly ball revolution. Right, uh, because hitters were adjusting to this increase in velocity. I mean, I mean, one trend that has been consistent over the last thirty years. This isn't new. Is that velocity is increasing within baseball? I mean, the average fastball twenty years ago was sub ninety miles an hour, and nowadays the average fastball is almost ninety four miles an hour. It's a massive jump, and so hitters to adjust to this have are since they're making less contact on faster pitches are realizing they need to maximize the amount of damage they're doing on contact as opposed to just trying to maximize contact itself because that's just not going to be able to happen if pitchers are throwing 100 uh, miles an hour. And so this revolution was kind of realizing that the production for like any given ball in play is in the air. And so hitters realized they need to start hitting the ball in the air a lot more. Uh, I think Justin Turner is kind of like a a great kind of example for this. Um, He was a career utility man, not a big guy. He's like 5'10", was probably 180, you know, when he was with the Mets. Hit hit for contact, did not hit for power, had maybe like six career home runs over five seasons or something. It was just kind of a fringe major leaguer. But he talked to his teammate Marlon Bird, who was kind of a subscriber to this idea of, you know, hitting the ball in the air, really kind of leveraging your swing and getting more of an upward plane, kind of think of as traditional uppercut. Right. Uh, and <laughs> Turner adopted this idea uh, when he was tra- uh, picked up by the Dodgers as a minor league free agent and turned into one of the best players in baseball. I mean, he, he, was, he was a top five third baseman for several years going to now. Um, and the Dodgers signed him to a $64 million contract because of it, whereas before he was lucky to get a minor league deal. Right. Um, and it completely revamped his career. I think what's so great about Rich Hill and Justin Turner is that both of them were past like midway points of their careers when they started making dramatic changes to their game. Like Rich Hill with his increased curveball frequency and Justin Turner with the fly ball revolution because of these like in a way player development movements, 
they became much better. They became elite players. And, like, I don't think either of them would have imagined that they would be this good so late in their careers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's that's kind of showing the impact that these player development um, changes in the implementation of this technology can have. Because the marginal gains, at least when you're getting out ahead of the curve, are so big. I mean, the, the surplus value the Dodgers got by signing Justin Turner as a minor league free agent and getting an elite third baseman in return is just huge. Like, right. that, that's massive. So you can get these turnarounds on, you know, like someone like Rich Hill, who was out of Major League Baseball at one point and turned that kind of player into a legitimate Major League starter. Like, that's just so much surplus value there. Let's talk about Driveline. So Driveline is a development and training company for baseball players, and it's run by this guy named Kyle Bodie. So what is the significance of Driveline? Yeah, so Driveline is not the only technologically oriented development company and not the only successful one, but it is probably the most well-known one, and it was one of the first. Kyle Body, uh, Kyle Bodie, excuse me, wasn't really affiliated with baseball at all and he was a fan he pitched in college in like d3 but but really just kind of followed it casually until he started uh coaching his high school uh, high school team he is he's a very smart man and very much into self-teaching and so he as he was teaching baseball players he statistically inclined he decided he was going to become an expert on like how to coach and he quickly realized that the traditional methods of coaching are wrong (laughs) in in many cases And so he decided that he was going to become an expert on the right way to train baseball players. So he delved heavily into biomechanics, kinesiology, physics, math, to really understand what goes into making a good baseball player. He built his own biomechanics lab from scratch, like for for $10,000, which is absurd. But he was able to use it to start doing experiments, to start doing randomized controlled trials, to like see what was an effective training method and what wasn't within the space of five years he went from like literally building you know this stuff kind of in an empty warehouse to having a bunch of major leaguers training under his program uh including trevor bauer who, right. who is very vocal supporter of of cow body and uh like has trains a driveline every off season right what what do you think of like the relationship between trevor bauer and cow body and like Bodie, Bowdy. I always forget. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's Bodie. I think you're right. Bodie, wrong. I have no idea. And like, how did Kyle Bodie push his game? What really was able to allow that relationship to thrive is the fact that is that like Kyle is always backing up whatever he's doing with like hard evidence. He always is able to say like, I'm doing this because of this empirical data to support whatever I'm doing. And so Trevor Bauer is the type of person who yeah. really who really appreciates when someone comes in and says, like, no, you should do it this way because of this. Mm-hmm. So it's to just because I said so or because that's what they've always done. And so Kyle Bodie came to Trevor Bauer and was like, uh, or they, they were both kind of attending the same seminar on weighted ball usage. Um, and they were both intrigued. But but when Kyle Bodie did research and found, no, they're like this actually improves velocity among starting pitchers. Sorry, I... I should probably explain. So, yeah, you can talk a little bit about <laughs> weighted balls. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the famous uh, training methods of driveline is they use a weighted ball system. So a baseball weighs about six ounces, but they'll have their pitchers throw a five-ounce ball and a three-ounce ball and a ten-ounce ball, differential training. And that is shown empirically. Driveline has conducted studies that have 
shown that uh, weighted ball training improves velocity like substantially compared to normal training methods. You know, when Kyle Bode was able to present Trevor Bauer with his data, Trevor Bauer like took to it. He he uses weighted balls like to, to train. He improved his velocity by going to driveline, and so that that's kind of the the data oriented um, relationship that really shows the impact that these newer technologies can have on player development, especially when you have both sides buying in fully. Right. So let's talk about the Red Sox. Yeah. I think one of the real significances of the Red Sox comes with Brian Bannister, who is the VP of Pitching Development. And he takes on this role as a conduit. Mm-hmm. So what does a conduit mean? And like, what was the significance of Brian Bannister in this movement? Absolutely. So so we kind of talked about this a little bit with Rich Hill. When I said the Red Sox came to Rich Hill and told them to throw his curveball more, that wasn't the Red Sox as like an organization. That was Brian Bannister specifically. He right. was the person who told Rich Hill to do that. And that's really important because... Traditionally, even though statistically oriented people have been in front offices for 20 years now, there's kind of always been a barrier between the people in the front office and the people on the field. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the team can do all the research and, and kind of find out what might make a player better, but the player has to buy in. And if you have a guy with an economics degree from Harvard coming and being like, hey, you should throw your baseball this way <laughs> when he's like 5'6 and weighs 150 pounds, it's really hard to kind of take him seriously when you're, you know, a professional athlete. Right. <laughs> so a lot of teams found it really difficult to kind of convey these ideas to their players and get them to buy in effectively. And what Brian Bannister had that was really unique when he first came on board with the Red Sox was he was a former baseball player. He, he pitched professionally in the majors, pitched for the Royals, was pretty middling, not, like definitely not a very good pitcher. I think his career was six or seven years, was fine. But he's very statistically savvy and very curious. And so while he was struggling in the majors, he tried to figure out how to get better. And so he delved into like advanced statistical concepts, was really understood all of the money ball ideas at the time when that was like first happening. Mm. And so when he, re- when he retired, he was in a unique position where he's a former Major League Baseball player, but he actually understands all of, the st- all of these statistical and technological concepts that are bandied about in the front office. And so the Red Sox approached him and hired him to kind of fill this role as a conduit, like you mentioned. That's kind of the name that the book gives to the role uh, that Brian Bannister occupies, where they are the liaison between the front office and the players. They're the one taking these complex statistically informed ideas and breaking them down into really digestible concepts for the pitcher to or you know for brian bannister's case the pitcher to internalize instead of being like well you have a spin rate of 3200 and league average is 2400 and so you really are optimized like need to optimize your pitch selection he's going your curveball is really good throw it more let me tell you why from the perspective of a pitcher Mm. and that's a unique voice that really didn't exist in front offices before. Right. Um, and, and it really allowed players like Rich Hill to take the advice they were getting a lot more seriously and, and have a much deeper sense of trust. Yeah. There seems to be like two separate groups. Like one is like these mathematical stat heads and the other are like these baseball guys with experience. And there's like this huge gap between these guys because like the stat heads think that the baseball guys are outdated and are resistant to like, all this advanced statistics and the baseball guys think that the stat heads don't know what they're doing because like they don't have any baseball experience whatsoever. They're five, six, five, 150 Mm -hmm. pounds, right? Because of this gap, it's important to have these conduits. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of those lessons that's really applicable to other areas of tech. I mean, you could apply it to medicine as well, where you have these AI-trained programs that can make these really, like, make diagnoses with a much higher degree of accuracy than mm -hmm. just human doctors. But the human doctors rely on their own experience and don't are, are hesitant to trust the diagnoses from these programs just because it's a little foreign to them. They don't quite understand what's going into it, how it's built. So if you get a kind of mediator between these two roles, someone who kind of explains to the doctor how they can utilize these programs to inform their diagnoses and overall improve the quality of care they're giving to these patients, that can lead to better outcomes for everybody. And so that's, that's just one example of how this kind of conduit role can really make a large impact when implementing technology in kind of a foreign field. Yeah, especially when there's like data that's like very difficult for some people to understand. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's hard for someone who, you know, trained in cardiology 30 years ago to understand what like an AI is actually doing and like what machine learning actually is. Right. So let's talk about the Houston Astros. Absolutely. Um, what was their significance in player development? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, apart from from banging on trash cans, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, been in the news a bit lately for that. But uh, the Astros were kind of the first organization to buy in fully on these new development practices. They were what the Athletics were to Moneyball, the Astros were to player development. Um, it's kind of a good analogy to make. Astros brought in Jeff Lunau in the early part of the decade to restructure the organization, and normally. When someone would come in like that, even a statistically oriented uh, general manager, they would staff the front office with their guys, but normally they would leave the coaches, the player development, to kind of traditional baseball roles. And Jeff Lunau really kind of took a scorched earth approach to it and said he, he fired anyone who wouldn't really go along with the vision he had for the organization and put in place people who understood what he was trying to do, what the organization was trying to do, and who understood the ideas that they were talking about. When did Jeff Lunau come as a general manager for the... I want to say 2012, okay. um, around there. Right. Um, so he was one of the biggest reasons for how they transformed from one of the worst teams in baseball to one of the best. Absolutely. You know, his, his ethical record is dubious, right. but it is hard to deny the impact he had on the game. That He's the, like Daryl Morey. Yeah, the, yeah exactly. Rockets, he, right? he was Daryl Morey kind of before Daryl Morey, right. uh, you know, uh, if I remember the timeline correctly. Well, Daryl Morey, I think, came to the Rockets in the late 2000s, oh, okay. but I don't think he became well-known for using these advanced analytics until he got James Harden in the mid-2010s yeah. and then hired yeah. Mike D'Antoni. I think Jeff Lunau was unique because he wasn't the first statistically savvy uh, general manager. I mean, you have Billy Bean, you have Theo Epstein, but I think he was the first one to realize that it wasn't just like the major league product that he could really influence this way. He was the first one to kind of see the big picture of like, you know, see the forest from the trees. And he was the first one to not care about, like, kind of what the, the damage left in his wake, so to speak. Uh, and so he implemented this top-down approach of an organizational philosophy, and it started with staffing the front office with incredibly smart people. I mean, you have former NASA engineers working on uh, their statistical models. <laughs> you, you have just an unbelievably, like, quantitative approach from the front office. But reaching out, it also meant that all the coaching staff were people who understood these ideas, who were able to implement statistically, you know, oriented concepts in their teams at the minor league level. So the players coming up through their system were familiar with this. So when they, it wasn't just like a surprise when they got to the majors and were presented with this data, 
they had it all the way up. Uh, and being able to implement these changes on an organizational-wide scale, like I said, you're not always going to have a Rich Hill or Justin Turner where you go from nothing to a superstar. Right. But if you make eight players 5% better, the returns on that are huge over you know five years. Like that, That's a massive impact. Mm-hmm. And so being able to really maximize the output of your farm system and just organization as a whole was really what Jeff, like Jeff Luna and Houston were able to do before anybody else. Right. Where do you think the Dodgers are like relative to the Astros and like what are their strengths and weaknesses um, when it comes to player development? Yeah, I, I, I think the Dodgers are, are right up there. I mean, they're, they're, you know, two or three, maybe even one A. I'm, I'm not totally sure of what the current state is, especially given the upheaval in the Astros front right. office. It's kind right. of, it's probably set them back just a little bit. Definitely. Uh, just because the lines of communication aren't going to be as clear. The systems in place aren't going to be as uh, understood by the people who are now in charge. And there's a brain drain. In Massive brain drain. Yeah, I mean, all, all the top-level executives have basically either left or been fired. <laughs> so... Uh, the, the, there's just like kind of a lack of familiarity in the Astros now. So even though they might still be ahead presently, I think they're not going to progress uh, quite as quickly as they have been for the last several years, just because there's going to be a bit of stagnation. And the Dodgers, on the other hand, they basically kind of came on board maybe a, a year and a half, two years later when Andrew Friedman was hired, which I believe was 2014. Andrew Friedman basically kind of started doing the same approach. It, he didn't quite go as scorched earth with it. He didn't. He, he was a little more gentle with his touch, but after four or five years, there was a top-down organizational philosophy that had spread throughout the Dodgers. In the same way that the Astros were really big on getting high-velocity pitchers throwing fastballs up in the zone, the Dodgers now are really big on having all of their hitters kind of really doing more of that launch angle approach, really leveraging their swing, getting the ball in the air, providing a lot of damage Um, and and they have so many financial resources to kind of back them Mm -hmm. uh, just because they're in Los Angeles and their ownership group is worth you know eight billion dollars that they they're really able to invest in a lot more infrastructure behind the scenes to even build up that advantage further I mean they they're investing almost like a VC firm in technology companies to try and get an edge on biomechanics or injury prevention I mean they're doing so much stuff that is going to bear fruit 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though they might presently be behind the Astros, I think they're absolutely ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the league. Wow. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the book, they talked a little bit about how inefficiency in player development is similar to inefficiencies in the market. It's talking a little bit about how like you don't have an advantage for long when it comes to this stuff like Mm -hmm. eventually other teams catch up and like you have to make a living by coming out with like idea and idea and like Mm -hmm. first only a few teams had a conduit now every team has a conduit first only a few teams had the edutronic camera the trackman now every team has it has one at least yeah often many oh absolutely and then like at first like you only had a few players you only had a few employees in player development and now you have like dozens and dozens of people Mm -hmm. in every team focus on player development mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i mean just because of the nature of baseball your ideas are going to leak out if you're a successful organization a non-successful organization is going to hire your people right that's just the nature of the industry i mean the orioles were maybe like last in the league in terms of their technological prowess 
but then they hired the number two guy from the Astros and he brought over some of the top executives from the Astros with him. Mm -hmm. And now they're probably one of the most progressive organizations in the league. They don't have the infrastructure there yet, but philosophically speaking, they have all the same knowledge and ideas that the Astros have. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of just the nature of uh, just any competitive edge within baseball. It's such a small insular industry that like nothing can really stay secret. (laughs) Awesome. I think that's all we had. Emmett. is there anything else you want to add about the MVP machine? I, I, I think it's a really great book. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I really want to applaud the authors. They did a lot of really good reporting. Um, they got a lot of really good sources to talk to them that it, that really can be hard to get. Right. Uh, you know, the Astros specifically are famously tight-lipped about what goes on within their organization, so being able to get all the details about their player development system on the record is, is just a pretty impressive achievement for, for these writers. Yeah, and like they were able to talk to Kyle Bodie, they were able to talk to Trevor Bauer, Rich yeah. Hill, Justin Turner, like all these. Yeah, it's it's really immaculately reported. Um, yeah, the, it, it's really well-sourced and well-written, and, it, and it's fun to read. I mean, you know, for someone like yourself who doesn't necessarily have that grounding in the baseball industry, it still was pretty digestible. So. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I think that my favorite sport is basketball, and I wish there was a book like this for basketball specifically. I don't know if there ever will be. I think I think it'll come one come, day. One day. Okay. B- b- basketball is catching up. Basketball is doing some crazy stuff with their with their technology and analytics. Yeah. So I, I could see it coming out in the next few years. <laughs> Certainly hope so. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much, Amit. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. And this has been the Tech Book Club. Thanks to everyone for listening. Cheers.